Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. It's been said time and again that the National Park Service is not adequately funded. There's just not enough money in the agency's annual budgets to address all the needs across the national park system. And those needs are many indeed, from maintaining facilities, keeping wastewater treatment plants operating smoothly, managing wildlife, and tending to the ever-growing throngs of visitors. That's where friends groups and cooperating associations come into play. They provide much-needed financial support through philanthropic donations that might pay for wildlife research, trail maintenance, or campground upkeep. Friends of Acadia is one such group, and its workload has grown through the years. While Friends groups once were seen as raising charitable dollars to fund the so-called margin of excellence in the parks, today the Park Service is relying more and more on these nonprofit organizations to fund projects addressing the muscle and bones of park operations, as I like to say. Today we're going to discuss this evolution with Eric Stiles, who recently took the helm at Friends of Acadia following David McDonald's departure. In a minute, we'll be back with Eric. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Wild Tribute is lifestyle apparel founded for our parks and public lands. We donate 4% of our proceeds to support America's most wild and historic places. This is our Wild Tribute. Together, we can and will make a difference for the parks. You can learn more at wildtribute.com. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The beauty of lifelong membership with Interior Federal Credit Union is that we are here for you forever to handle any financial needs that life throws your way. Car loans, home repairs, investment accounts, trust accounts for the family. 99% of our members never visit a branch because of our 4.8 star rated mobile app. Make sure you share the gift of membership with your family. Start kids and grandkids with a Little Buffalo account at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NZUA. Welcome to The Traveler, Eric. It's great to have you on for this virtual introduction and conversation. Kurt, it is truly an honor and a pleasure, and thanks for everything that you do to elevate the voice of National Park throughout the country. It's a passion, that's for sure, but um, it's a lot of fun along the way, no doubt. Now, you came to Friends of Acadia from New Jersey, and um, having grown up in New Jersey, maybe I can understand why you left, but um, what, what intrigued you about this job, and why did you head north to Maine? Kurt, great question. So I wasn't running away from uh, New Jersey and New Jersey Audubon loved it there, but I was running to Friends of Acadia and Acadia National Park. Uh, the first time I remember coming here, uh, I did come here as a, I think I was 10 months old, my father said. So he, he said that, no, he introduced me to Acadia, but 
you know, I don't have many memories of that. Uh, my wife and I, uh, Lydia, came here in 1993, and it was uh, our first vacation as a, as a kind of young couple. And we spent two weeks in Maine, and we intended to come to Acadia for three days, and we spent 10. And just fell in love wow. with the, the with you know the amazing land, the culture, the the intersectionality of the mountains and the sea, all the things that makes Acadia so magical. And we've been back about a dozen times with our kids. Our daughter's now twenty one, our son's eighteen, and one of the my favorite pictures is I'm holding our daughter in a backpack uh, out at seawall as we're exploring kind of the intertidal zone. And that's uh, at home. I have a similar picture of our son, and we were on Sergeant Mountain when he was a little one. Um, so uh, it, it stuck with us. And uh, I've had amazing mentors in my life that have opened doors for me. Uh, like many uh, folks, especially in this market, you get calls from headhunters. And typically, I try to pay it forward. So I say, well, oh, this person could be a, a great fit. Well, when I got a call from the search firm and they said they're looking for a new CEO of Friends of Acadia, knowing the reputation of both David McDonald and Friends of Acadia, it was the first one that I thought, boy, this could be amazing. Uh, and I'd been mm -hmm. at New Jersey Audubon 21 years, um, wasn't looking for a change, but um, it's al almost serendipity. And I sat on it for a week. I was a little nervous. My wife is a very talented, she's won awards at a state level, county level, district, and um, I was nervous about uh, saying, ooh, let's look at this life-changing opportunity. And I shared it with her, and there's this gleam in her eye, and she said, go for it. You know, so we just have this shared love of the land, and, and we're so uh, grateful to have this opportunity to give back to a place that has given so much to us. You know, it's kind of interesting, Eric. Um, we're both from New Jersey. Um, Acadia was both our first national parks. I think I was about seven or eight years old when we first went there, um, drove up from New Jersey with my, my parents and my, my one brother. And um, it really stuck with me. I mean, people constantly ask me, you know, gosh, what's your favorite national park, Kurt? And I inevitably answer, well, Yellowstone, just because it's, it's so wonderful with the, the thermal features and the wildlife and the mountains and the forests and the lakes. But Acadia is, you know, right there. I mean, don't tell any of the other park friends of mine, but um, <laughs> it, 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 it carries such incredible memories. I mean, um, you carried your son on a backpack. My, my father carried our poodle in his arm as we climbed up the rungs of one of those trails. I don't know why he brought the dog. Don't know how he got the dog in the park, but, but certainly the tide pools and whatnot. Um, and Acadia really is, a, is an amazing place, as all national parks are. They, they all have their, their unique elements. Now, you mentioned that your, your wife has won all these awards. In, in what? Uh, she's a middle school science teacher. So she's very oh. much into especially getting the kids outdoors, outdoor gardening, outdoor learning. Um, I say that trying to advance an outdoor classroom in New Jersey is like a salmon trying to swim up a waterfall. Um, and in Maine, it's part of the cultural norm. So she just got a job working at the local high school here and is really uh, excited teaching biology and environmental studies. So Wow. Wow. Kind That's of a great place. Two peas in a pod, though. She's uh, a very different and much better person than I am. So, <laughs> Well, don't know about that. I haven't met her yet, so I can't, can't say. But, you know, uh, Friends of Acadia has done so much trying to get teens into the park and engaging them in different facets of the national park system or the national park operation there, largely in, in 
I believe, both natural science and, and social science, right? Yeah, and they've revamped. It's really exciting to meet the, uh, let me say, ages 15 to 18, um, the uh, Acadia Youth Corps, and get to hear from those uh, young adults, kind of late teens, about their experience, what it meant for them is kind of like a graduation ceremony at grandparents, you had parents. And um, in the past, they might have really focused on something like the trails. And they revamped it to really say this is an opportunity to engage the emerging leaders in the full operational portfolio of the national parks. Um, and you could just see the, the power as the, the young men, young women were sharing their own experiences, realizing there's a whole suite of potential um, career opportunities within both conservation and the national park system. Um, whether that's from you know working trails, uh, the cultural, uh, the his, uh, the historic, the natural resource, the interpretive space, um, there's a whole range of opportunities here. And one of the silver linings of COVID, and there aren't many, is that people are spending time outdoors at a record rate. Yeah. Now, when I say yeah. the silver linings, we know that kids that grow up surrounded by green significantly lower rates of depression and anxiety as adults. We know that kids that spend time outside, much higher performance level in school, there's higher attendance records, there's higher graduation records. We know that adults spend time outside, lower blood pressure, lower rates of diabetes, lower rates of asthma. And you could say, well, why are you talking about this? Because it's one of the, the, the challenges is because people have been getting outside at record numbers, visitation to our amazing national parks has spiked. And so that becomes a, a kind of double-edged sword. On the one hand, we are committed. We are saying that this is the nation's park. It is the premier system for the United States. And our, our, the people of the United States deserve nothing less. But what happens when you start putting five gallons of water into a gallon bucket, right? It gets a little messy. And so, there. And, and so that's one of the, the challenges that our great parks are facing throughout the United States, which is how do we maintain a high quality experience without harming these incredible places? No, it is an incredible challenge. And, and I know um, Kevin Schneider and his team there at the park is, has worked with the, the Friends of Acadia to try and solve some of these issues and um, the reservation system, if you want to call that, to, to drive to the top of Cadillac Mountain is one aspect of, of trying to address the, the crowds, and it's it's one of many being tried across the national park system. And um, how's it working? Uh, Kurt, um, you, you're bringing a smile on my face because at first I was a little skeptical, I have to say, when I heard about the reservation system, because going up there for sunrise, I'm not a morning guy, but the only thing that's going to get me up at that time of the day was sunrise at, at Cadillac Mountain. But my wife made a reservation for us to have a, you know, have pick, go for a walk up there and kind of a picnic at dusk. It was the quality of the experience now that the reservation system is in place is so much higher. It's so hmm. much higher. It's, I mean, if you've ever been on a crowded subway in, in DC or, or New York City or those urban areas, it's not a high quality experience. You're sitting cheek to jowl and, you know, and Cadillac was at risk of, I mean, that experience was definitely being uh, impeded, not from anyone's individual's poor behavior. You just had too many, too many sardines for one can, right? Yeah. And so the quality yeah. of the experience I can share just went there last Sunday. 
I can share because of the reservation system, the quality of that experience is much higher. But even more important than kind of one person's anecdote is the surveys that are being done of visitors support that as well, that people are reporting a higher quality of experience. There's fewer, there's also opportunity costs, right? So if your rangers and law enforcement are up there to deal with kind of double and triple parking, well, that pulls them from other important things like search and rescue. So it has improved the visitor experience. It's also allowed for the National Park Service staff that were up there dealing with uh, New York City or Philadelphia traffic conditions um, and uh, getting them out into the park to do more important work. Yeah, yeah, no, it challenges. Um, we're talking today with Eric Stiles, the head of Friends of Acadia, uh, the philanthropic partner of Acadia National Park. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Everglades Foundation the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. You know, Eric, talking about national park experiences and how the uh, reservation system at Cadillac has improved the quality of the experience, one thing that you know I, I've talked about from time to time with uh, other guests in, in weeks and months gone by is how do we define the national park experience? I mean, I'm, I'm long in tooth. I'm, I'm in my seventh decade. I hate to say that. I can't believe it. I don't feel like it. But Point being, the experience that I grew up with in the 1960s and 1970s going to national parks when we didn't have the type of visitation we see today is much different than what we are seeing today with the crowds in Yellowstone and Yosemite and, you know, Acadia. So what to me could be, um, I wouldn't say a miserable, but a less than ideal national park experience to somebody who grew up in the, in the, the aughts that we're in now it might just be another day, another day in the park, so to speak, and they get used to that. Um, I, I don't know how you define the national park experience and how you aim to make it the best experience. There's a lot to unpack there. I mean, what is <laughs> what is it to be the nation's park? I think you'd start by saying that the experience should be welcoming and inclusive. Right. And there are some folks that don't feel, um, you know, I think the National Park 
service is uh, making efforts in this space of diversity and inclusion. In other words, we're saying that, that this is the premier park for our nation and should serve the nation. And what that looks like from my family might be different than another family. So, exactly. so I think unpacking this is recognizing that not all folks experience things in the same way and have the same welcoming feeling. And I think there's a lot that can be done and is being done to, to do so. But to get to your point about kind of the crowding, it was interesting. Everyone said, don't go into the park on the 4th of July weekend, right? So, I mean, there's all sorts of places you could go, Cadillac, Sand Beach, that you would have been cheek to jowl. But I just went yeah. two miles to the west, talked to, talked to Dave McDonald, and I said, hmm, what, where would you hike? And he said, Cedar Swamp Mountain, which is the same that a board member, Anne Green, told me. It's just two miles to the west of Cadillac Mountain. Mm -hmm. I hiked six and a half miles. Gorgeous, gorgeous trails, great vistas, good sights. I only saw two other parties over two and a half hours. Wow. So I think some of this is really helping people understand that it, it is both a numbers problem, but it's a distribution problem. Right. So every time I've gone to Yellowstone, unless I'm at, you know, Old Faithful, if I get more than half a mile from the trailhead, you got it to yourself. So I think part of this is as people come to visit, it's helping them have the kind of the tools to uh, understand that there are amazing opportunities. I mean, there's these iconic places, Thunderhole, but you can go to a place like Seawall and walk along the seashore, Bass Harbor Lighthouse, or these other places at Acadia, which are also featured at other national parks. So instead of being a moth, being, uh, you know, seeking that light and we're all like heading in the same place is how do we help create opportunities to educate and engage people and let them know about other wonderful places that are analogs that you're not really shoulder to shoulder, your, your stress level is high because you can't find parking and, and that kind of stuff. So I think there's a variety of, of ways that you can do that. One of which is listening to great podcasts like this and being <laughs> armed and informed. Another, there's some really good apps um, that are available for various national parks to help give you that sense of other opportunities. And then there's uh, things like mass transit. Um, one of the things that I'm really proud of, Friends of Acadia working with uh, amazing partners like the National Park here, Kitty National Park, but also the towns are financially contributing. It's called Island Explorers. And the idea is sure. how do we get fewer cars on the road? And the mass transit system here is free. What's interesting, I just heard heard this for the second time. When they initially piloted it, the, the fare was $2 um, for, ride, for riding on the bus. They removed that fare and ridership went up 600%. Wow. 600%. So it's six times the number of cars that you remove from the road. Yeah. Right. So, so really leaning into the space and saying there is not a single solution, but there's, you know, there's whether it's reservations, whether it's busing systems, uh, educating and engaging visitors about amazing places that they can go that may be a higher quality experience for them because it's less crowded. And you're basically getting, in fact, I would say you're, you're going to leave with, um, a net positive over someone that is stressed to the nines, trying to find parking on a weekend to see Thunder Hole. You know, Thunder Hole is amazing. I'm not saying don't go to Thunder Hole, but what I am saying is instead of just thinking of, I need to see Old Faithful, I need to see Half Dome, I need to see Thunder Hole, there are other things out there that folks can get out and enjoy. 
No, absolutely. And and it it boils down to we just have to be more strategic with our park visits. Um, whether you go out early in the day, go out early or later in the afternoon. Um, my wife and I were just um, at Cape Breton Highlands National Park in um, Nova Scotia. And one of the must-do activities is hiking the Skyview Trail. And I guess we got there at, at 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning along with, you know, four or 500 of our best friends. And they had a parking attendant there. And, uh, you know, he kind of looked at us and we looked at him. And uh, he basically... I asked him, you know, would it be better to come back in the afternoon, later in the afternoon? He goes, yeah, you'll you'll really have a much better experience if you come back after four o'clock. And they've got this huge parking lot there, and it must be it must be almost a, a quarter or a half mile long, and there's spaces on both sides. And so we left, and we hiked three other trails in the park. Didn't run into a soul on any of them. They were really interesting trails. I'm, I'm writing up a story on them. You can read it on the Traveler in the coming weeks. We went back a little 4, 4.30, and, and yes, there was less traffic there, but there were still a lot of people out there on the trail. So, you know, you have to make those those strategic choices going going forward. And, you know, we've really digressed from talking about the Friends of Acadia and just talking about national park experiences overall. But you talk about crowding and, and whatnot, and there's something going on there in Bar Harbor with the, the cruise ships. And um, can you update us on that? Didn't the town council just uh, take a vote or something on how many cruise ships they want to see coming into port every day? Yeah, and look, as someone that recently, well, I guess four years ago, went to Venice, um, someone who's been to Key West, I can appreciate how cruise ships can really um, have a tremendous impact, unintended impact on the quality of life. So there is two efforts underway. Uh, one is the town of Bar Harbor said, hey, let's sit down with the industry and figure out a solution because they're, you know, it is an important, uh, I guess, revenue base for some of the local places, but you don't want to uh, throttle the golden goose. Um, sure. And, and that is what can happen. You know, God, if you've been to Gatlinsburg, Tennessee and folks may um Gat Gatlinsburg. Thank you. Gatlinsburg. And, P and Pigeon Forge. Yep. I mean, I'll be candid. Like I love great smokies, but that scares the heck out of me. Like the fact that I had to drive through that to get to the national park was not a pleasant experience. Now others may disagree, right? But I think it is fair to say, you know, what is the quality of experience? What is the quality of community? What's the quality of economy? And to your point, it needs to be strategic and thoughtful, and it's not yeah. going to be the same answer where you are. So here in Bar Harbor, the town council, uh, I think, that has done a very good job to say it's a legitimate issue. There is multiple interest here. You know, the joke is a good compromise is when no one's happy. Um, sure. And they sat down with the industry and they sat down with the Chamber of Commerce and residents and came up with a framework that was just approved that really seems to be a, a good uh, kind of practical solution. There is also a citizen's petition that would be much more draconian in uh, limiting the cruise line industry. Um, but that will be up for the voters here to decide. And and look, I, I say, you know, look, democracy is a participatory sport and it only works if people show up. Okay. And one of the things I'm really proud of is the community, both the, the residents and the town council um, have really rolled up their sleeves and are working on this. And to your point, is it the perfect solution? Well, no one knows, but part of it is putting things in place and then assessing it. 
is this working? And then being open to modifying that. And I feel that the I'm very proud of my new home community, Bar Harbor here, work in Bar Harbor, live in Bar Harbor, the approach they're taking really, really resonates with me um, as a resident and as a, a team member at Friends of Acadia. All right. All right. We're talking today with Eric Stiles, the new president and CEO of Friends of Acadia. We're going to take a short break and we'll, we'll talk about Friends of Acadia when we get back. <laughs> Since 1986, National Park visitors have turned to the best-selling guidebook, Passport to Your National Parks, to collect fun ink stamps from each of their explorations. Just take your passport book to any National Park Visitor Center or park store and get your free ink stamp with the date and location of your visit. Personalize your passport even more by adding stickers, logging your favorite hiking trails, and mapping your next adventure. You can also show off your love for our national parks with passport-themed apparel and accessories. Best of all, 100% of proceeds from the Passport program support your national parks. Stamp your passport as you capture stories, preserve memories, and discover America's natural and historical treasures. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and online at smokiesinformation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Kurt, one of the things that you touched on was the quality of the visitor experience. And, the, and there's a lot of academics that have done work in this space, but I'm going to credit the one that taught me it uh, in my career about 20 years ago. His name was Julian Agaman. He was a, a professor, still is a professor at Tufts University, that has shown that if people see folks, they self-identify, someone mm -hmm. that looks like them, as uh, a, a what is perceived as staff, it could be a volunteer, it could be staff, the person that's greeting you at the parking lot looks like you, you feel more welcome, you felt feel more included. So there's a whole push right now at US Department of Interior, it's called a diversity joint uh, venture. And the premise uh, joint ventures uh, was the successful model for recovery of waterfowl in North America. We focus on flyways, so the Atlantic Flyway, the Mississippi Flyway. The idea is you bring all the parties together that share that common interest, which was duck conservation. So U.S. Department of Interior has said, hey, we have a common interest here, and the common interest is diversifying the workforce. First of all, it's simply the right thing to do. Second, it's the it's the strategic thing to do by way of if you have a more diversified workforce, then the public responds better because they see themselves in the professionals there. Third, it brings more talent to the table. Right now, conservation mm -hmm. is overwhelmingly Caucasian. Well, as Boris Johnson said, talent is equally distributed, but opportunity isn't. And so if we're leaving talent on the sidelines, and that's harming our national parks. So I, you know, again, recognizing that, um, you know, diversity inclusion, if we're saying that, what is the national park? What's the national park experience? For whom or with whom do we work and partner and serve, 
that diversifying the workforce is an important portion of, I think, the future of the National Park Service, as well as friends groups. So I'd say that we're on the cusp of that journey. It's an exciting journey, and it's going to yield incredible dividends. We're going to have more talent. Visitor experience is going to go up. There's nothing wrong with people that look like you and me, Kurt. Um, but <laughs> but uh, what we're saying is we need to diversify that portfolio. Well, no, and there's a lot of things that go into that. I mean, you can you can talk about it and you can present opportunities, but um, the, the the pay has to be there, the salaries, the quality of life. Um, you know, year after year after year, I've been running the traveler for going on 18 years now, and um, the best places to work in federal government surveys that come out every year continues to show the Park Service lagging far behind. And I know Chuck Sam's the new director of the Park Service. That's one of his goals is to really raise the 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 workplace experience for the Park Service employees. And, and you know, I hope he figures out how to do that because it's been um, something that's been talked about for years. Not an easy task. No, but boy, is it worth undertaking, right? I mean, the, anything that's easy really isn't the impact you're looking for. So I think I think there's good trouble to be made. Um, here in Maine, we're very fortunate to have the strong support of our entire delegation for Acadia National Park. But let's get to scale, right? So a mentor once said, a vision with no funding is a hallucination. And if we're saying that we want to be one of the world's premier national park systems, to your point, philanthropy cannot replace the investment from tax revenue. That is, we should be looking to create additional opportunities for that margin of excellence, right? The nonprofit, mm -hmm. what you can do is you can innovate a lot more rapidly than government. So it allows us to pilot things. It allows us to bring things perhaps to scale sooner or faster. But when we talk to our donors, we're talking about leveraging federal dollars, not replacing them. So, you know, sure. I think Congress needs and this president need to do a better job funding our national parks. Yeah. You know, full stop. It, it is as simple as that. It it really is. I think the Great American Outdoors Act was a step in that direction, but it's, you know, it's going to sunset. Is it the solution? No, but is it an indicator that there is strong bipartisan support from Louisiana to Maine, from New York to California? I don't know any congressional member that is opposed to our National Park Service system. So I think we need to do a better job as a community educating and engaging folks to make sure that we are really resourcing the agency, which is only which is one element, right? So yeah. the second is kind of that culture. And I think that the men and women I've chatted with within the National Park Service are among the most passionate, dedicated government employees I've ever met. Uh, I mean, yeah. my hat's off to them. They inspire me every waking moment. And we just need to do a better job supporting them. They deserve nothing yeah. less. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And hopefully um, Congress will renew the Great American Outdoors Act when it comes up in the next couple of years. But let's let's try and um, go back to the beginning and, and Friends of Acadia and your arrival there. Did you, after you got your dream job, develop a, a list of priorities that you wanted to tackle? Good point. My own view is that if an organization changes its priorities with a CEO, it doesn't have an organization, it has a cult of personality. So Friends of Acadia has an amazing vision for the future, developed with the community, developed with Acadia National Park. 
I'm very excited for those priorities. I think there's some growth opportunities for us as an organization, but I've seen too many organizations, nonprofits, they bring in a new CEO, they jettison their strategic plan, they get rid of the top staff, they bring in a whole new board, and it may as well be, it's, there's no continuity. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if we think about, we are in this business for decades to come. Right. It's not that we're looking to do something fun and flashy for a year or two. The types of conversations you and I are having are about how do we store these in the face of climate change? How do you diversify your workforce? How do you better resource the men and women of the National Park Service? What is the role of philanthropy within this space? So to me, that's exciting. Because an organization that's looking to pivot on a dime and and they asked me in the interview. They asked me in the interview, what is what is my approach? What's my philosophy? And I think, Kurt, I was attracted to Friends of Acadia because of its amazing history, because of the amazing work, and because of the amazing vision. I am very excited to be part of that team now. So when I look at some of the growth opportunities moving forward, things like climate change, it clearly is uh, front and center for all national parks. So It um, is issues from uh, the infrastructure decisions to how do we have model projects. So for example, in stewarding, I always say that conservation, 99% of folks in conservation biology are trying to navigate towards the future by looking in the rearview mirror. You wouldn't drive on 95 by doing that and it's no way to steward our natural resources. That is the plants that are here today may not be the ones that are going to be here in 30 to 50 years, the same sure. for animals. So so that mind's eye to future and future conditions. And that's exciting space because there was a, a leading conservation biologist, Hector Galbraith, that said, I must have looked pretty um, down and out by the end of the conference. And he said, look, you can either get depressed about the two-thirds, up, up to two-thirds of species we're going to lose, or get incredibly excited about of that, the two thirds that we can save. How do you want to look at it? Because if you're if you're fate, you know, if you if you say it's a fait accompli, that's that's you know going to lead to those outcomes. I think you know. Additionally, as we start taking a look at these spaces to say, um, you know, our, this is the national park; it's serving the nation, and it's starting to take a look at different cultural opportunities, like we're seeing with First Nations right now, right? So mm-hmm. how how mm-hmm. do we how do we, without harming the experience, broaden that experience and recognize that those different experiences are legitimate? It may be sure. different than when I was 10 and my dad loaded us up into the Griswold family station wagon and we went, spent three months at national parks um, unless the tent flooded out like it did in Grand Tetons. But that was how we experienced it. That may be different than other families, right? So, so the universal experience is a high quality experience, but that's the universality. Different families, different cultures are going to experience it in different ways. And how, how, how do we start pushing into that space, leaning in that space? Another one is, is huge and it's hitting all of our, it's hitting the nation, which is affordable housing. Say, what mm-hmm. the heck is Friends of Acadia doing with affordable housing? They're, they're a partner uh, organization. They're a conservation organization, a cultural organization. Right now, uh, if you look, the trail system at Acadia is, I would argue, is the best in our national park inventory. And as kind of a data point for that, it is the only trail system in its entirety that's registered on the National Historic Registration. 
And that's thanks in large part to folks like the Rockefeller family that, you know, mm -hmm. created that, that infrastructure. Well, to maintain that, you need staff. So uh, Katy National Park had the approval to hire 40 folks. They could only hire 21 in large part because you can't afford to, you know, if you're fresh out of college or maybe second chapter and you're getting paid as a seasonal, the cost is insurmountable. So to accept the job here, you either need to come for money where your parents can write that check to subsidize you or be local. So think of the talent we're leaving on the sidelines. So now friends of Acadia working with Acadia National Park and other partners have recognized that in order for us to really have the workforce that we need, the talent of the workforce and the numbers of people, we're going to need to build workforce housing. Now, your listener may be like, snooze time. But the thing is, unless the men and women of the National Park Service have places to live, if your ranger has to live an hour away and you have an emergency, who's going to be there to respond? Yeah, no, it, it's a real challenge. And, and parks across the country are running into that housing issue, um, particularly for seasonal employees. And as a result, they're, they're going uh, without their full staffs. But that, you know... That does raise a question of, you know, what I touched on in the introduction to today's show is about the evolution of expectations on friends organizations, on what you're what you're being relied upon. It, it's it's more than just the margin of excellence. And is that is that right? I mean, you know, you're involved there with housing. I mean, how long is it going to be before you're involved with wastewater treatment plants? And do, do your donors go along with that? You know, um, do they want their name attached with, uh, you know, the, the the Rockefeller wastewater plant at uh, Bar Harbor or Bass Harbor? You know, I have never seen. Um, so there's there's two, I think, truths about Acadia. One is it is among the most poorest national park in the national park, you know, portfolio. When I say poorest, when you drive into Yellowstone, you're either in Yellowstone or you're out of Yellowstone. You go through, and the same is true of Great Smokies, the same is true of Yosemite. Here you're driving down the street and you're going through Otter Creek and you go into the National Park and then you're in Seal Cove and then you're in the National Park and then you're through Northeast Harbor and you're back in the National Park. And that creates both challenges, but overall, I think opportunities because these villages are embedded within the National Park. There is a strong sense of interdependence and interconnection, which leads to, I have never seen a place that is as philanthropically invested in a park as I have seen on Mount Desert Island. The community, the sense of pride and love and people have very strong opinions, right? because they sure. care so deeply. So when we're talking to our donors about the need for housing, the response has just been overwhelmingly positive. So I think it's a fine line. In this case, I'd say that we're looking to make up for a market failure. And the market failure is that the free market is not providing affordable housing throughout the United States. Are we gonna solve that problem for the United States? No. Are we gonna solve that problem for Mount Desert Island? No. But every other entity on the island is under the same constraints. And every other entity, that's whether that's your large hotel owner, they're building workforce housing. Jackson Laboratory, building their own workforce housing. Mount Desert Island, their own workforce housing. So we're no different. 
than those other entities. Um, I'm excited and, and so um, appreciative that our donors understand because it's, it's kind of a leap. Say, well, mm -hmm. if I care about the carriage roads, then what I need to do is give you money to develop workforce housing. That's a little bit of a leap, but they're yeah. there. You know, it's interesting. Um, here in the, the 21st century, there are so many more challenges that the Park Service is confronted with. Physical challenges, as you were just talking about affordable housing, you know, housing period in, in many cases. And you're getting more people coming into the parks, and so there's more crowds, and so there's a need for more rangers, hopefully. Um, there's a, a need to somehow figure out the, the traffic issue, the mass transit issue. And on top of all that, you throw in climate change. And I know, you know, the, the staff there at Acadia not, not too many years ago had an incredible deluge in the, in the summer when, I don't know if it was nine inches of rain, but it was a lot of rain in a short amount of time. And oh my gosh, all of a sudden we've got to, you know, rethink all the culverts in the park and the carriage roads and the, the damage is there. And then, oh, by the way, did you know that the Gulf of Maine is warming faster than any other body in the oceans in the world? And, and what type of problems is that going to bring? So I guess on one hand, you've got all these more, all these new issues that you have to grapple with from, from where you're sitting. At the same time, does that give you more more opportunities or more more issues to raise with potential donors. You know, you, you might find somebody who's really concerned about climate change. So yeah, here's a million dollars to help with this. And, you know, I don't care about affordable housing. I mean, does it open up the, the, the possibilities in terms of raising money for these issues? Yeah. So just to back out, look, I think that the national parks are facing enormous challenges. And what we need to do is propose enormous solutions. In part, that's what attracted me to Friends of Acadia is they don't shy away from those enormous solutions, nor do our partners at Acadia National Park. Um, and that's exciting space to be. I think um, also to your point, philanthropy cannot replace appropriations. It has to be additive. But I do think uh, it's a bit like stone soup, right? That you, you start out by putting your piece into the pot and then it really inviting to your point, we have to be creative in, in getting to solutions. That mm -hmm. the old way, you know, how you solve problems in the 80s is gonna be different than how you're gonna need to solve problems in the 2020s. And that's exciting space to be in, right? If you, I don't know, I, I like learning, I like growing. Um, I have the sense that, that friends and national park partners throughout the country are both wrestling with this, but coming up with innovative solutions and sharing that with one another, right? What made the Romans great was they didn't innovate, they just adopted. So hmm. within the okay. Friends Alliance, you know, if something is working great in Cuyahoga and I was just on the phone with them the other day, we don't have to come up with that as our own idea. We just need to adopt it. So that's one of the things I'm really appreciative is this tight collegial network around the country. Yes, each site is different, but some of the challenges are shared challenges and, and really kind of in that space. I think to your point, when I give to an organization, if I'm allowed to direct those funds, you're going to get a greater investment from me. So absolutely, we go to the donors and try and meet them, you know, where their interests lie um, and have that portfolio. Like 
hey, there, there are these six or seven opportunities that you know we really need you as a social investor. Now, what I can tell you is every conversation I've had with every donor, they want to know, is this replacing tax dollars or being used to enhance it? Right. right. And so this is where I'm going to encourage every listener, pick up the phone, call your congressional member, and tell them that national parks are important to you. And what are they doing to support the national park system? That'll start to grab their attention. We can only hope. We can only hope. Well, Eric, it's been great chatting with you today. Um, unfortunately, we're, we're out of time, but I know we could go on for another hour or two because um, we're, we're both passionate about the parks and, and finding solutions and, and discussing them. And um, you know, one of these days, we'll have to go down to Southwest Harbor and, and discuss it over a lobster lunch or something like that. <laughs> Absolutely, it'd be it'll be my pleasure, Kurt. And again, I want to thank you and your organization for what you're doing to really elevate and amplify these important issues throughout and encourage your listeners to also support your organization. Uh, This happens through generous support from donors and they should look at you and your organization as a very important organization to support. All right. Well, I appreciate that, Eric. All right. Well, have a a good rest of the day and um, we'll catch up down the road and, and see how things are going. Sounds good, Kurt. Take care. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you've been listening to our weekly podcasts, you know that there is an incredible array of stories and news to bring to you every Sunday. If there's a story in your favorite national park that you think we should include in our coverage, please drop us a note about it at news at nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.